you, Mike. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a blessing to see everyone here today. We're going to continue on our study in 1 John. And to that end, I'd invite you, please, to turn to that little book toward the back of your Bibles. We're in chapter 1 again. Uh, We're moving on, though, to verse 5. And I'm going to read on through chapter 2 and verse 6. Uh, as we'll, we'll see how far we get in this particular section, but this is the section that goes uh, together, uh, notwithstanding the intrusion of an arbitrary chapter division. Anyway, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, if, you, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. This is the message... We have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. Well, I expect most of us at one time or another, when we have managed to leave the, the confines of Boundary County or Bonner County, have made our way down to Spokane, right? And as you've driven through downtown Spokane on uh, I-90, you might look off to the right there. I'm kind of always looking for, you know, well, there's Carl's Jr. And then there's, <laughs> you know, looking for the food. But right in the middle of all of that there, is this facility with a big sign that says escape rooms. Anybody seen that? Anybody know what an escape room is? Oh, it's, it's, I've never done it. I'm a little leery of doing it. I play uh, from time to time. There's a lot of video games of this kind of thing where you get stuck in a situation and you have to think your way out. The way is maybe not obvious how to get out. I wouldn't recommend this if you're claustrophobic. Um, not that it's enclosed tightly, but just the way to get out is not easy. You get locked in there and you have to think your way out of there. Um, if you're like me, you're operating at a deficit already. So, uh, anyway, I keep thinking how to do it sometime. Uh, but, uh, it's, it's kind of a neat thing, but I rather expect as I, as I've kind of imagined myself going through that sometimes. And I, I've tried to, even in imagining, cause I can, I can feel this sense of panic come up. What if I can't get out? Well, of course, there are people there that say they will let you out if you really get stuck. So you've got to have a certain amount of faith that goes into that. But nonetheless, that, uh, that desire to get out is what I want you to think about for here for just a moment. To think about the desire to get out of something that may not seem obvious. You've got to think your way out of it. You've got to calm down. You've got to think. Okay. Let's, with that in mind... Let's review a little bit of this context that we've been talking about here. Now, the first four verses of this letter were reminding, the first reason that John was writing was so that their joy would be full, the believer's joy would be full. Their joy had been attacked by false teachers who crept in, were spying out their liberty, trying to lure them away from the orthodox uh, faith that had been 
been delivered through the prophets and the apostles and pull people away, calling God's, uh, God's word into question, the deity of Christ into question, the, the moral standards of God into question, and, and, and even the pronouncement that, that God clearly makes that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, that, that there is none who does good, no, not one, and yet these false teachers were saying, we're not really sinful, Therefore, Christ's atonement wasn't really necessary. So all of these things were causing division, causing uh, unrest, and causing people to doubt the very nature and certainty of the salvation that had been promised to them through Jesus Christ. And in the midst of this was this moral, the, the, the moral licentiousness, the, 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 the casting off of God's rules so that Hey, you know, we can do what we like in the flesh. It's just the flesh. It's a very Greek idea. As long as our spirits are doing whatever we want, our flesh, uh, our, as long as our spirits are right our, in our flesh, we can do whatever we like. There's those kinds of things that were going on. And John has something to say about that as we get to the second reason that he says that he's writing this book. If that reason is stated there in chapter 2 and verse 1 when he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This comes in the heart of this section, which can kind of tell you that every that as we go through this section, we're going to be looking at it from front to back and moving our way towards the, the center because uh, it all adds up to John's purpose here in the middle of this, this section. You know, <clears throat> the false teachers were encouraging this licentious um, casting off of rules kind of living, even denying uh, original sin that man is at heart corrupt, in spite of the fact that God says that over and over again that we are because we fell in Adam. I think we can all look at ourselves and note the various temptations that we have in the flesh, and they're different for everyone, not just uh, sexual lusts, but uh, even whether it's gluttony or laziness or you, you name it, anything else that we find comfort in our flesh that we want to indulge in, those can get to be habits that are very hard to break. In essence, they can be like the escape rooms that I was just referring to a little bit, where we find ourselves there and we can't see an obvious way out. We have the scriptures, we, we can say, yes, oh yes, I believe that Jesus forgives us for our sins, and as we will look at here in, in this passage, as we just read together from Nehemiah chapter 9, we know that we have a God who forgives. We, have, we should have the faith that somewhere he's going to be willing to open the door and let us out when we get stuck. But we don't always see the way when the way is right in front of us. The Apostle Paul writes, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you or let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will, with the temptation, provide you a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. That tells us that, that those tendencies of ours to indulge the flesh are not an excuse we don't have the right to say, well, I just can't find the way out, so, oh well. No. Um, if we take that uh, approach, we will truly never get out of that room. We will be in bondage to sin all of our days. But Christ redeems us to free us from the bondage of sin and death. So here, John, in this passage, this second reason is writing to show you the way out. There is a way to freedom from the tyranny of sin. So let's talk about the way that is put out before us here. We'll begin in verses 5 through 7, and then jump down to chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, as those, these passages parallel each other and bookend this section I'm calling this the kind of the metaphysical part of the way. It's not quite so obvious. There's a, this is a, more the supernatural um, 
less physical aspects to the way that God has set before us. And it could be summed up by saying that the way begins by walking in the light. Now, if you've studied the Gospels of John and the Epistles of John at, at, any, at any length, you know that the themes of light and darkness are big themes that he develops all the way through the Gospel and through his letters. And here is no exception. What does he mean by, by light? Well, he starts off, I think, by giving us a pretty good clue. God is light. God is light. It's like, okay, but what does that mean? Well, first of all, it should tell us that God is the source of this light, and he's the source of the way. Now, I've never been in one of those escape room things I was talking about, uh, not physically. Um, what would really freak me out is if they turn the lights off, then we're going to have problems. Um, there will be scratch marks in the walls at, at that point. But with, uh, I'm thankful that the Lord does not leave us in the dark. He himself is the light. We, we spoke of, his, of the deity of Christ. We spoke of the, the, the power that is with uh, our great God to sustain us, and that's where our joy lies. Well, our joy lies in him in part because of this second reason that he provides the light. But he's not just a, a, a person who hands us a flashlight. He himself is the light. Of course, I think probably many of your minds will flip over to the book of Revelation at the end where there's no sun, there's no, there's no uh, stars, there's no other external source of light uh, in the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. God himself and the sun are the light. Their very presence illuminates everything. So God himself is the source of this light. Matthew Henry, uh, whom I'm sure many of you have read, wonderful devotional commentator, um, tried to boil this down um, into a succinct statement. And you'll, you can tell, you'll be able, I'm going to read it to you. Um, I don't know, how do you succinctly summarize the character and nature of an infinite God? Well, Matthew Henry attempts it, um, and you can decide whether he succeeds or not, but it certainly should get us, uh, our mental juices rolling. What does light mean? He defines it this way. He says, the light is the excellence of the divine nature. Okay, so far, that's simple enough. We've often talked about God's glory being, uh, talking about his glory is another way of talking about his perfections, the things that make him him in all of his uniqueness and all of his power and all of his infinite uh, perfection. Well, that's the idea that Matthew Henry is getting at here. The excellence of the divine nature. He is all that beauty and perfection that can be represented to us by light. Light is being used metaphorically here to, the, in, in, to illuminate, to show, to, to stun by its brilliance um, all of God's beauties and perfections and, that are beyond our imagining. All right. Now it, it gets a little more into the weeds. He is a self-active. Nobody made him. Nobody's wound him up. All right. <laughs> He is a self-active, uncompounded spirituality, purity, wisdom, holiness, and glory. And then the absoluteness and fullness of that excellency and perfection. Anybody wants me to send you this quote, I'll be happy to do that. And you can meditate on it for a week and see how you do. I've been meditating on it all week. And the more you think about it, the more you come, you understand that Matthew Henry is onto something. He's onto the fact that God is beyond our comprehension. There is no defect, he says, or imperfection, no mixture of anything alien or contrary to absolute excellency, no mutability. In other words, he won't be changing. No, nor capacity of any decay in him. In him, there is no darkness at all. Verse 5. And he refers to verse 5. 
So at the end of it, he has to go, well, the best I can do is come back to what the scripture says and just meditate upon that. God himself is the source of our light. The beginning of the way out of the bondage of sin, John is saying, is the Lord himself. Fellowship with him, living in his light and what he teaches and what he shows us as he shows us the way and guides us by his spirit. With God himself as the source then, as we walk in the light, what does that walk look like? Well, there's a couple of, well, three things here uh, that are all related. In verse uh, six, he says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, perhaps as I read through this earlier, you may have noticed how many times it was the word lying, lie, liar, was mentioned. You get the idea that honesty and integrity are pretty big deals in this walk of the, of the way out from bondage. And so I'm calling this the walk of integrity, walking in integrity. The first part of verse seven, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we'll stop there for a minute, and then go back down to uh, uh, chapter two, look at verse four there. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. You can see how these passages complement each other. And the truth is not in him, uh, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Most of us, when you think of integrity, we probably have a lot of other synonyms come to mind. Probably honesty would be at the top of the list. We might also think of things like work ethic or ethics. We might think of something, uh, if we go a little deeper, in terms of maybe dependability, trustworthiness, those kinds of things. These are concepts that are all through this passage. Now, I think the gist of it, it boils down to this. To be really uh, colloquial, Walk the talk. To walk in integrity means to walk the talk. To, you know, where we've, I say I have faith. I say I love God. I, 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 uh, I, I say I want to serve him. But if you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. It's not that complicated. We can look at our, look at our Bibles and say this is what God has said. About, any, about whatever our temptations are, about whatever our tendencies are, what has God said is to be our thought process, our behavioral standards. If we say we love him, but we don't care about keeping his word, we're liars, bottom line. And you will never find the way out. And God could be showing you his light with you know, a billion lumen spotlight on the way out, but you won't go there if you don't really love him enough to keep his commandments. We can say we love him all we want to, but walking in integrity is a big part of breaking free and, and, and the way out of bondage. Now, notice the next aspect here, and this is something that um, I, I know you can do this as a group activity at the escape rooms thing. Um, I, I really wouldn't like doing that if I was all on my own. There's a reason why uh, it's considered to be a heightening of punishment to put somebody in solitary confinement. Misery loves company, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Um, but this way out, you know, people try to, what's the natural thing when, if you're caught in sin and you're struggling with it, do you just like to go out and just tell everybody, hey, I'm having this sin problem? No, we go hide in the corner. We kind of pretend it doesn't exist. And in doing so, we cut ourselves off from one of the main uh, helps that the Lord gives to us to break free of sin, and that is one another. To hold each other accountable, to pray for one another, to encourage each other in holiness. So part of this walk part, uh, of, of finding the way out is in fellowship with others. Notice uh, what we have there also in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us 
from all sins. And then down also in chapter two again, uh, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And then the latter part of verse five, by this we may know that we are in him. To say, I know him, we're saying, I have fellowship with him. That's what we desire. We desire fellowship with him. And we have fellowship with each other. This is part of the way out. To walk in fellowship with accountability and help to each other without, without judgment, without, oh, you wretched, horrible thing. How could you possibly think, even think that? I want nothing further to do with you. If uh, that's the response you get, then you know that there's a problem on the other end as well. Um, because we really ought to all have the attitude of there but for the grace of God go I. And to walk in with love towards one another and show mercy uh, towards others who have offended us or, or who have just offended uh, God, who uh, have to stand and answer to their maker more than you and me. So we don't want to be like that unjust steward, unjust servant who was forgiven much and then went and, then went and uh, hatefully throttled someone who had uh, hardly owed him anything. No, we've been forgiven much so we can show that kind of grace to each other. So we have fellowship with one another in this way out and fellowship with God himself. Now, um, where we have, um, let's see, um, in verse uh, seven of chapter two, the latter part of that says, uh, or excuse me, uh, verse five, whoever keeps his word in him truly The love of God is perfected. Now I want to talk about that phrase, the love of God. Grammatically, this could be taken a couple of different ways, but I think the the context helps us understand exactly what is meant here. This could mean God's love for you, as the love of God, or it could mean your love for God. In this particular case, I think uh, if you look at the larger context, for example, in verse... uh, 15, a familiar verse, I think, to all of us. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Very clearly there, that verse just demands that you're speaking of, you can say all you want to about loving God, but you don't really if you're consumed by these other loves. And I think the context here, uh, with that in mind, I think that's what's in John's mind here, and it fits very well here. Uh, certainly God's love to us needs no perfecting but ours towards him needs a lot and so there in verse 5 if you keep his word uh, that love will be perfected through exercise (laughs) we talk about uh, exercising our in the fire fire service we talk about exercising our equipment um and that doesn't mean we send it out, you know, to a field and say to the truck, start pumping. No, no we, we're the ones doing the exercise. But we're, we're uh, through, the, through the use of it, uh, keeping the equipment in good order, good running order, and helping us remember what we're supposed to do in times of an emergency. And if we're going to do that well and have our skills perfected, well, we have to practice it. We have to practice it according to the, the principles uh, that are related to the mechanics of the machine as well as the techniques for, the, uh, for fighting fire or whatever else uh, that we're doing. Same kind of thing here. You can say you love God, but when push comes to shove and you hit temptation, what you've been exercising will kick in. That's the muscle memory that will kick in. If you've been indulging the flesh, that's what's going to kick in, in whatever area of life. But if you've been spending your time in God's word and exercising yourself in God's word, that's part of the Lord's way out of the bondage of sin. And the love of God will be perfected in you as you live more and more unto him, which all of us as believers should be doing during the process of sanctification, being made more and more holy, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that brings me to the last aspect of this uh, of uh, walking in the light, 
the light of God himself, as we are in fellowship with him and fellowship with one another, walking in integrity. And this is related to that walking in integrity. As we look at the last part of, well, just at verse uh, six of chapter two, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If you go right back up to verse five, this follows right along with this. This this comes together and makes this complete picture. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. How how, How has God existed throughout eternity? How did Jesus Christ walk on this earth? We say we love him. We need to walk in a way that is consistent with that. And so this is about what, uh, this is what walking in the light is all about. Uh, to quote another passage of scripture where the Lord commands us to be holy because he's holy. Boil it down. You can say you're Christian all you want to, but if you don't live like a Christian, um, everybody has a right to look at what, you know, all we can see is the outward appearance. God looks on the heart, but we can look on the outward appearance and go, there seems to be a problem here. There's no integrity. You're not walking according to the one you say you love, says you should walk. And in fact, uh, the way that he patterned uh, the way the walk should be. So the way out, this this. You can see now it's metaphysical because we're talking about the spiritual nature of who God is and walking in relationship to him. But there is a practical component that's beginning to come out here in the way that we live. And John, as he starts to work in towards that stated reason of why he is writing this particular section now, digs into that a little bit. And I'm calling this the physical part, for lack of a better term. Uh, this way, while it begins with walking in the light, it, it, this way requires your faith. And that faith is going to be shown in some very practical, physical ways. Verse 8 of chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. <clears throat> your faith in the Lord's way, your faith in Jesus Christ's perfect, completed sacrifice once for all on the cross, your faith in what God says in his word about how you should live is going to be shown in honesty. You'll be, you'll be honest about who you are, what you've done, and what the, what the real situation of your heart is before God and men. We're not, we, won't, we won't lie and say, oh yeah, I've got it all together, when we don't. I think most of us would, would just absolutely love to be able to do what Job does throughout the book of Job, over and over and over again, saying, God, you know my integrity. You know I am blameless. You, anybody feel real confident about saying those kinds of things? Anybody, when you read through the book of Job, ever, you read those statements, you kind of cringe a little bit and going, Job, come on, man. The Lord never corrects Job. He says, no, you're really not. He kind of indirectly helps Job see that he's not towards the end of the book saying, come on, Job, well, let's have a little discussion. But then he tells Job's friends, see my servant Job, be like him. And ask him to pray for you because you guys are messed up. He's righteous before me. It's a pretty remarkable thing. Anybody, anybody long to hear your creator, God, say that about you? Well, I'll tell you what's at the great white throne judgment. Jesus is going to say that because of what he did on our behalf and he intercedes for us on that basis but as far as this life is concerned we need to walk in honesty before one another and not try to pretend that we're holy and righteous when we're not now the statements here are 
somewhat absolute. In other words, I, I don't think John is particularly, though the principle does carry over, I, I don't think he's particularly saying, well, you know, if, you, if you're struggling with figuring out if you've sinned or that sort of thing. He's really talking, remember, in the context of his, of his day that he's writing to with a bunch of people who said, we are sinless. You don't have anything to be atoned for. That was the false error that was going on. So John is really speaking in those absolute terms. If you say you haven't sinned, you're a liar. You're a liar. Now certainly, on a more occasional basis, we can know that we've sinned and go, oh, I didn't do that. Our children can do that. You know, you catch them red-handed and, and, and they're looking at you, look deer in the headlights looking, you say, did you do this? And they're like, <laughs> and you know they did and they know they did um, certainly yes when, that, when we do that kind of thing yeah lying is going on but he's speaking in a more absolute sense here uh, that goes beyond that uh, of course we don't want to do either one we need to walk in honesty before God and men and that springs out of faith because if you actually trust God to do what he says he's going to do to trust him in his statements of what he says he has done on our behalf. I mean, <clears throat> let's, let's be real. What is a lie? And what motivates it? A lie is basically motivated uh, by the fact that we don't like the reality that we're in and we try to be God and change it. And it's almost always motivated by fear. The fear of being found out, the fear of want, the fear of something. So you've got idolatry. Idolatry and fear are two big things that are wrapped up in every lie. So if we say, oh, I'm not sinning. I don't have anything to repent of. Uh, I'm okay. I can get out of this room. Um, you're in bondage because you're a liar. You don't have the means and you'll never escape it. But the way that the Lord gives us uh, does, uh, does make that door out, that way out, clear to us. But it starts with being honest. Um, I'm going to come back to this and as, we, as I summarize these points, but hold on to that thought. The next one is a verse that's very familiar to us here because in our scriptural affirmation of acceptance for two or three years, we've used 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we're all familiar with that. It all rolls off our tongue. And yet, the way out, really, this isn't just, you know, lip service. The way out requires confession. And that confession, again, will demonstrate the faith that God has given to us. To, to cast ourselves at his feet, to honestly lay out before him our offenses, and to plead for his forgiveness. If you struggle with confessing your sins, you have a faith problem. And there can be some other things too. But uh, now let's go back to Young people, I'm not beating up on you today. But if a child has trouble confessing, there's fear that's there. But there's also, uh, at the root of that, there's a lack of faith in the parent and about what the parent's going to do. And hence the fear comes in. If there's absolute confidence in the parent, um, then... When something's done wrong, confession is easier when there's confidence in the parent's love and care. Um, same thing with the Lord. If we'd really trust him and trust that his redemptive work is enough and trust that his love is enough and it's faithful and it's certain and will never fail, then as we sin, confession before the Lord, knowing that he's not going to boot us out on our ear, 
because of his promises, because his promises are sure, that's where faith comes in here. And so we've got part of this way is confession. And then uh, chapter two and verse three says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, this is a positive way of saying we stop doing the wrong stuff. We stop doing the sin. Faith is going to be shown in your honesty before the Lord and you're confessing your sins, but also your faith is shown in repentance to trust that the Lord's way, turning around and going back the way that he says to go, is actually the way to go, and you believe it, and you live by it. Many people don't want to to, uh, serve the Lord Jesus Christ because they think if they repent before God and turn around and walk uh, according to his way that they will no longer have any fun in life. I've had people tell me that. Maybe some of you may have had that thought at some point in your own conversion experience. I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm not going to be able to do that. Well, I'll have to give up that. Well, you know, being a Christian is pretty dull and boring. Uh, I'm here to tell you, being a Christian is not dull and boring. I could really go for a little dull and boring in my life sometimes. I live a wonderful, full, exciting life in Christ. And I don't need all the stuff that the world thinks is fun. Because that stuff is fun, is but a distraction. Now, I know in those escape room computer games I've played, there are all kinds of little things they put in there that distract you. You go click on all these other things. A little flower pot over here. Might be something over here. Or, oh, there's a bug. I'm going to go click on, you know. And, and, but it has nothing to do with it. It's just all stuff to confuse you and take your mind off of where the real way out is. And the world's idea of pleasure is just like that. I believe what the psalmist says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Remember we looked at that from Psalm 16 last week. And he's given to us, the lines have been uh, given to us in goodly places. The inheritance that he's given to us is wonderful. Why would we want the leftovers and the fake smoke and mirror stuff of the world? It's a distraction. We need to trust that the Lord knows what he's doing, what he's saying. And so we turn from our sins and follow his way. That's called repentance. Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 3 that they, they need to bear fruits in, in keeping with repentance. In other words, you say you repent, it's the same idea. You say you repent, live like it. You say you don't want to sin, well then don't. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance is about keeping his word. Paul said in Romans chapter 2 and verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now he's not talking about uh, salvation by works here, but he is showing, uh, he is simply stating what John states here as well, that if you actually believe God, your life will demonstrate it. It will show as you basically give the proofs that you're really his and really love him and you're really walking in his way. And so you will demonstrate that that justification is actually genuine in your heart and life. So your faith is shown in your honesty before the Lord as you confess your sins before him, as you repent from your wickedness and turn into his way. And then it all comes together in chapter two and verse two. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Your faith is going to be shown, and this is almost like defining something by itself, but not quite, but faith shown in really trusting him. That his, that his blood is enough. The propitiation or forgiveness of sins is truly found in him. Trust in that great propitiation or that work 
that brings about forgiveness for sins, that atones for the sins of all his own through all the world in every time and place. This is not a little thing to put your trust in. This is the God who made us, chose us, keeps us, and will take us on to glory all in good time. Now, if you look at these four items we've talked about, honesty, confession, repentance, and trust, maybe this afternoon when you have a few minutes or sometime during this week, go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and look at the Beatitudes. And you will see the very same progression in the teachings of Jesus there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. That's about honesty. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty after righteousness. That's talking about confession and repentance. And it moves, the Beatitudes are a progression. They're not a grab bag. They go, there's a logical order to them and they're speaking about salvation and the outcome of salvation in life that ends to trust and living at peace, knowing the way out from the bondage of sin. So we've seen this way that begins by walking in the light and understood now that this way requires faith. Requires faith. But, okay, so now we've had that metaphysical part. We're really speaking about the working of God and who he is and trying to come you know, to see him and walk in fellowship with him and, and, and walking by faith there. That, that's kind of our part of things and what we're involved in. Um, anybody feeling really confident right now? I mean, there's some things I've talked about that should instill some confidence, but if it's really all about my faith, Anybody here ever have shaky faith? Yeah. Of our weakness, frailty of our flesh, sure. I'm so glad as we get to the heart of this, this statement, this reason that John gives, reason number two for writing, that you may not sin. That's a pretty, John, what in the world are you saying? It seems pretty enormous, particularly if it's dependent you know, on our faith and how well we walk in integrity and consist- consistently with his glory. If it stopped here, uh, this would not be a message of hope so far. This would only get us to a certain point and then we might as well go, the Ro- go join the Roman church and, and uh, figure that we've got to go do all, you know, all the confessionals and the Hail Marys and, the, and the, the penitents and everything else to go through. And then maybe, if it's good enough, we might shave off some time in purgatory. Pretty hopeless business. But look what we have here in chapter 1, verse 10. And you, when I first read this, you're going to go, what is this? What, what are you getting at, Pastor? All right. If we say we have not sinned, he's repeated that thought again, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Do you understand what John has just said and the import of it? If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar. Put that together with its companion verse in chapter 2, also verse 1, but the second half. The, the, uh, two, uh, verse 1 is two sentences, so it's the second sentence. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, I've, I've divided this up into two points here, but I'm going to be kind of dealing with them both together because they are, they are one thought. The way, yes, we have to walk in the light. It requires our faith. But the way is ensured by the ministry of our advocate. 
I absolutely know someone is going to let me out of that escape room, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if I, if I say I haven't sinned, then what in the world did Jesus Christ come for? What about all those statements from the Old and New Testament, in which, some of which I've already recited today, that we've all fallen short of God's glory, that we're corrupt from birth, that we were enemies of God, we're enslaved to sin, on and on and on and on. There is no need for an advocate if we haven't sinned, right? But the Lord declares time and again that we're sinners. Is he just being mean and lying about us? If we say I haven't sinned, we're saying that he is. We're saying that he's a liar. You notice in the other passages about lying, it was about us lying, right? Basically, if we take the attitude that, well, I don't need any, I don't, I don't need any forgiveness, I don't need any of this, we're basically taking our lie and putting it on him. Kind of the essence of narcissism. He declares that he has come into the world to save sinners. The word declares that all have sinned and come short of God's glory. Jesus said um, in Mark chapter 2, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And by righteous, he didn't mean that, oh, there are people who are sinless and I don't need to deal with them. The false teachers would love verses like that. What he was saying is basically put in parentheses there, I didn't come to call the self-righteous. Or In other words, if you think you don't need anything, you're lost in your sins. I came to call sinners. Um, so, if we were sinless, one of us would be lying. That tells us that Jesus Christ as an advocate is absolutely trustworthy because he does not lie. He cannot lie. In his perfections. His judgments are sure and certain, and his assessment of our character is absolute and without question correct. We are sinners. We are lost. And apart from him, we have no hope whatsoever. But in him, in his light, we have all the hope in the world. He's not playing games with us. He doesn't pacify us and, and basically say, oh, it's okay. It's not that bad. No. He calls it like he is, like it is, like our situation is. And shows himself equal to the task to redeem us from this horrible situation that we're in because of sin. And you can trust him with your life. Because he is a righteous advocate. He is named here, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You know, we've often described righteousness uh, here in this congregation different times uh, and contexts as, as being defined as something that is in conformity with a standard. And we've used uh, different kinds of analogies, but uh, one of my favorites, as you know, those of you who've been here for a while, we talked about uh, the walls. This is an old building. Um, most of the walls are pretty straight. <clears throat> most of the corners are pretty true, but uh, they're, they're not quite perfect. And if we hung a plumb bob up at the top and hung it straight down, you might, uh, you might find that uh, the plumb bob's hanging straight down, but the wall's not quite in conformity with that standard. So therefore, it would be an unrighteous wall because it's not in conformity with the standard. Jesus Christ, the righteous, is the one who alone is perfect in every respect, who has absolutely fulfilled every single part of God's standard for what is true and right. 
and therefore is the only one who is capable of standing in our stead, who offering himself could actually pay the penalty and then stand before God and plead on our behalf. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 reads this way, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. We have a living Christ who conquered death, who fulfilled every standard of righteousness on our behalf. He is our advocate. He is our way out from sin. That way is ensured. And then the reason John gives makes perfect sense and suddenly doesn't seem so outlandish. I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Here's the result. Forgiveness, restoration, and freedom from the bondage of sin. There is a way out from sin's bondage. It's laid out here before us in God's word. You have only to walk in it, trusting in the power of God for the victory. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for showing us the way out, a way that is not dependent upon our ability to think our way out, but dependent entirely upon you who knows all the secrets and who knows where the door is and who knows where the distractions are and can guide us by your word into the way of truth by your spirit. Having our safe passage out secured because of the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, grant to each of us that faith. Let us not walk in fear and dishonesty, but in fellowship with one another, consistent with the way you live and are. Help us to walk in the confidence that even when our feet do slip, as the passage says, if we do sin, we know that it, it all is not lost because we continue to have an advocate. Lord, let us not uh, then take that as an excuse to be careless but rather grateful, knowing the frailty of our flesh. And Lord, help us to go from glory to glory, grace to grace, and become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So that as we walk out that door into the day of glorification, when we truly are uh, without sin at that point, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We pray these things in his blessed